Welcome to episode 282 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show you who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to retired agents Phil Torsney and Tommy McDonald. In this episode, part one of a two-part episode, they review how they were selected nationwide for a special assignment in the Boston Division to work the unresolved fugitive investigation for James Whitey Bolger, a longtime FBI top 10 fugitive and Boston organized crime boss who hid for 16 years with his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, before he was captured. Bolger had served as an informant for the FBI. His FBI agent handler, John Connolly, was charged and convicted for revealing to Bolger that he was about to be indicted for RICO by the Massachusetts State Police and the Drug Enforcement Agency, DEA. Federal prosecutors later filed a superseding indictment and, in addition to the initial racketeering charges, charged him with 19 murders. Phil Torsney and Tommy McDonald gathered the evidence that finally led to the capture of Bolger and Greg by agent Scott Gariola in the Los Angeles division. Phil Torsney served in the FBI for 29 years. Most of his career was dedicated to investigating domestic and international violent criminal activity. As the coordinator of a multi-agency violent crime fugitive task force in Cleveland, Ohio, His team worked to apprehend violent fugitives, many who had fled the United States. Torsney was also an FBI SWAT operator and twice served on FBI tactical deployments to Afghanistan. It was during the last two years of his FBI career that Torsney was assigned to the Boston field office to coordinate the investigative efforts that resulted in the apprehension of Whitey Bolger. Following his retirement from the FBI, Torsney worked as a special agent for the Special Inspector General for Afghanistan Reconstruction at Bagram Airfield in Afghanistan. He is currently working as a special investigator with the Bay Village, Ohio Police Department using his extensive experience investigating crimes against children. Tommy McDonald served as a special agent with the FBI for 25 years. 21 as a special agent, and 4 as an investigative specialist. Tommy's first office assignment was the New York City field office, where for eight years he was assigned to the FBI NYPD violent crime squad in lower Manhattan, also known as the Joint Bank Robbery Task Force. After working in Boston on the special assignment to capture fugitive Whitey Bolger, Tommy returned to New York, where he was assigned to the White Plains Resident Agency as the case agent on a 65-defendant RICO gang case in Yonkers, New York. He later accepted a transfer to the Portland, Maine Resident Agency out of the Boston Division. He spent his final year in the FBI serving as the recruiter for the Boston field office. He is currently employed in software sales as a regional sales manager for ULab Systems. Now, before we get to the interview, I want to remind Reader Team members to look out for my monthly email next Wednesday, February 1st. I'll share a few photos from my trip to New Zealand and Australia, plus my review of the new Hulu series, Welcome to Chippendales, for FBI authenticity, with insights from retired agent Scott Gariola, who actually investigated the murder-for-hire case. In your podcast app's description of this episode, there's a link to the show notes at jerrywilliams.com. You'll also find links to where you can buy me a cup of coffee, join my reader team, and learn more about me and my books. Thank you for your support. Now here's the show. I want to welcome my guest, retired agent Phil Torsney and Tommy McDonald. Hey guys, how are you? Good, Jerry. Hey, good afternoon, Jerry. You don't know how excited I am to do this case review with you, not just because it's a great story for the podcast, but it's a fascinating story that I've always been interested in learning more about. It covers an unfortunate and sad time in the FBI's Boston division. 
And you'll talk about that. But it also just shows the determination of the FBI to make this right, to get this right, and to hunt down this fugitive who needed to answer for his crimes. Where do you want to start with this case review about the infamous Whitey Bulger? Well, I tell you, Jerry, it's one of those cases that needed to get solved, like you said. It took a while. It actually took 16 years close to it for him to be captured. I guess we need to make sure everyone listening knows the story behind Whitey Bulger and him becoming a fugitive. Go ahead, Mac. James Whitey Bulger was one of the most sought-after fugitives in the history of the FBI. He was a crime boss in the Boston area, charged with shakedowns, extortions, several murders through a really aggressive and successful investigation by the Mass State Police and the Drug Enforcement Agency. It also was a huge blemish for the FBI in that he was an FBI informant, and his FBI handler, John Connolly, was convicted in both state and federal courts for crossing the line while operating Bulger as an informant. So you had those two birds flying in the background of this case that made it more and more complicated. Yeah, Bulger was at the top of the heap for organized crime, and a lot of people went through a lot of bad times because of his criminal activity. When he was a young man, he was involved in an Irish street gang called the Shamrocks. There were several other Irish street gangs, but really when this thing got rolling, he was working with Steve Fleming, an Italian guy. There was a lot of mobs in Boston. There was an Irish, Italian, but... A lot of it was revolved around drugs, narcotics, corruption and gambling, that kind of thing, payoffs, extortions. I'm not sure I'd characterize it as an Irish gang or an Italian gang, but a criminal gang for sure, with participants from different descents to some extent. A lot of them Irish, of course, Kevin Weeks, Bulger, those guys, but... Basically, these guys are looking to make money off of other people and by abusing the law, abusing other people. That's the gang. It was criminal gang work. He was the leader of that gang. There was the Winter Hill Gang out of Somerville with other participants, different backgrounds. They had like a garage down in the the north end of Boston. They had a garage down there, different places they worked down in. But yeah, that certainly was an affiliation, the Winter Hill Gang, no doubt about it. And one of the guys involved with that was Howie Winter, who's deceased as well. And he was the leader of the Winter Hill Gang for quite some time. A lot of that was racetrack, corruption, gambling, that kind of thing, as well as homicides and all kinds of criminal activity. That's what I would say if you want to characterize Bulger and what he was up to. And it went on for a long, long time. It's about making money at the expense of others and by violating federal, local, and state laws. I guess that's my take on what he was all about. So we can just kind of summarize it by saying that he was a bad dude who had been tipped off and now was a fugitive. Yeah, that's right. I was lucky enough. I worked fugitives. I was in Atlanta division, working violent crime, went to Cleveland for almost 25 years, all violent crime. I was the task force coordinator for a violent crime task force in Cleveland for 20 years. There was a supervisor above me, but on the surface of things, on the street level, I was running the show with other law enforcement agencies in Cleveland. And what we did is target and capture people that were doing the most violent, the most heinous crimes in Cleveland. Cleveland homicide would call us when they needed us to find somebody, and we'd find them. Like a lot of guys in the FBI during my time, all the fugitive guys and the guys in violent crime in certain offices got to know each other because you picked up guys. A guy from L.A. calls me. And there's a guy in Cleveland, we pick him up or grab him, find him and get him incarcerated and then ship back to Los Angeles. Same for a lot of different areas. I got to know the guys in Boston that same way. There was Jay Fallon, a good friend of mine, Bob Patnaud. We arrested a guy for murder in Cleveland who was wanted out of Massachusetts by the FBI in Massachusetts and the state police and corrections. And so they knew me. I knew them. Several years after Bolger went on the run, They formed a task force in Boston to find Bolger, his accomplice. They brought in people on temporary duty assignments, including myself, starting in the early 2000s from different divisions, really all over the country, Cleveland, Las Vegas, Chicago. They brought in fugitive guys, and we all knew each other to try to make this thing happen. 
Part of the reason they did that, which is interesting, is the Boston Division had participants in this. The state troopers were great and on board in this Bulger Task Force. At that point, there was an urgent need to try to catch him. They brought us all in, and I was able to work on this temporary duty basis on a number of occasions and got to know what was going on. This was before I was actually sent back to the TDY that me and McDonald were. It was a process working up to get to the point before they brought us in separately in 2009. Bolger had a lot of warning. That's part of the reason he got away. He was able to hide out for a long time. He was a smart guy. He knew what was going on. He knew probably this fugitive thing was coming at some point, and he prepared for it. But these initial charges, in late 1994, Bolger became aware that these charges were coming. He had previously gone on a trip almost cross-country with one of his girlfriends to check out places where he might be comfortable living when the indictment came down, when the arrest warrants came out, and people started looking for him. And we took a road trip. Most fugitives, they don't have the luxury of doing that. Most fugitives, they, they get in a bar fight. Somebody gets shot in a bar. They didn't know it was going to happen the day they go to the bar. But all of a sudden, they're, they're on the run, and they got to go somewhere, but they don't know where they're going. Bolger was tipped off as far as this indictment coming down. He had been out previously. He had previous fake ID he had obtained starting way back in the 1980s. In 1994, he planted out even before that. In January of 1995, he's indicted in Boston and he hits the road. There's other stuff there as far as the uh, specifics. Mac, maybe you can add to that. Yeah, I think a couple things that made this case is that this just wasn't a very traditional fugitive case, Jerry. There was a lot of background music. What added to the music was the original indictment for Bolger was obtained by the Massachusetts State Police and the Drug Enforcement Agency. They did the heavy lifting in regards to Bolger and getting them off the street with that original indictment or trying to get them off the street. When they went to execute the arrest, he obviously had skipped town. And I add that because it's really crucial to the whole story of the fugitive case. It's not common for the FBI to get involved in a fugitive case where the other investigative agencies are another federal agency and the state police. The next part of the background music is the whole John Connolly saga where Bolger's FBI handler. To Phil's point, this was a prepared fugitive. Most fugitives in law enforcement are not prepared. Bolger had established an alias ID of Thomas Baxter and gotten a New York State driver's license in that name and had gotten a phone line and I think a mailbox set up at a residence in Selden, New York, out in Long Island. It was a relative of his enforcer, Kevin Weeks. I think it was a cousin of his. So he had a plan in place for when in time he learned that he was going to be charged in Boston. And obviously it was an FBI, retired FBI agent that tipped him off and thus began the fugitive case. This case had really everything. It had homicides, a lot of homicides, and he had time to prepare to be a fugitive, unlike the guy who shoots a guy in a bar in the heat of an argument and has to figure it out within seconds of the shooting. This guy had figured it out previously, and that's one really interesting thing, the steps he took prior to going on the run to maintain a fugitive life, and it worked for a while. When he became a fugitive, was this assigned to just the Boston Division as a regular fugitive investigation? And if so, when did it reach the point where they decided they need additional help and started asking fugitive experience agents to come into Boston on TDY? Why was that necessary? Because that's not ordinarily done. Right. He becomes a fugitive January of 95, and really, they were rounding up quite a few people then. He's one of the few that got away. Steve Fleming was arrested, and it was the DEA, the state police, and were all involved in looking for these guys as well. There's different squads in the FBI. There was the Organized Crime Squad, and they did a lot of the initial work looking for Bulger because it was violations were off of what the FBI called the Organized Crime Squad, and it's just good work. They did a lot of things, but you start going a year, then another year without this guy in custody, and you need to make some adjustments. And they did do that. They started bringing in some people from outside the Boston division, turning the case over to the violent crime people from Boston that work these things all the time. And eventually they brought in people, including myself, 
Part of it was because just to have new eyes on the case. Part of it was because of the corruption issues that the Boston office was saddled with because of the dealings between Connolly, Bolger, and others. We were able to say when they brought in some of us from outside of Boston that we're FBI agents, we're here to do the job like all FBI agents are in general. We're trying to get this thing done. We'd knock on doors in South Boston looking for Bulger or elsewhere. And a lot of people thought the FBI wasn't really looking for it. I mean, there were these corruption issues and they there were people that truly thought the FBI didn't want to catch Bulger because it would, would open up all these other doors and all the other information about the corruption. That wasn't the case, but people thought that. They thought there were people who told us or implied that we had Bulger hidden away somewhere, weren't really looking for it. Not the case again. And to emphasize that and to emphasize what kind of links the FBI and other agencies all the way along, there's other agencies here, DEA, the state police, the marshals eventually, what links we'd go to catch this guy, we brought that up and we pushed that. Bolger was on America's Most Wanted, the show where they put up these criminals. He was on there many times and he was on there pretty quickly after he was indicted and they hadn't caught him quickly. They really thought they were going to grab this guy in a matter of weeks, and weeks turned to months, months turned to years. Next thing you know, they're they're up in the reward for Bolger, and he's on the FBI top 10 list. And that's when they bring in additional help from fugitive agents in the FBI, and there's a task force set up in Boston including various agencies. And it's at an offsite in the Boston office. The one I reported to was at a Coast Guard building down near the Seaport District. And that's where we worked at. We weren't actually in the office. We were working on our own as a task force. And the whole goal was to catch Bolger and bring him back to face justice. So for those who at the time thought that the FBI wasn't really interested, wasn't serious about catching him, they had no idea that there was a whole task force of how many different multiple representatives from multiple agencies? How many did you have on the task force? Initially, it was the FBI and the state police. And eventually, it it turned into the marshals, U.S. marshals toward the end. Basically, the Massachusetts State Police, the FBI, and the DEA, you can't say enough about the agencies that investigated this case and brought the charges. And that was DEA and the Massachusetts State Police, as well as the FBI. There was a lot of conflicts there. This is way before myself and McDonald were involved. But Bottom line is there was a lot of work done to charge these guys. So then you got to do a lot. And then after all that's done and all the the conflict because of that and the corruption and the things that didn't work out well, you have to get this guy in custody. And that's when you brought in the fugitive people to catch him after time had passed. And it didn't appear that a lot of progress was being made. The original fugitive folks in the state of Massachusetts, Bob Patnaud, a number of other guys, Excellent work. And Mike Carraza from the FBI, there was a number of agents, a number of troopers, and they did all the work that needed to be done. It included pen register work, telephone work, interviews. Some people were locked up within Bolger's family that really affected the case and affected the way Bolger thought down the road. And the same with his females he was traveling with. The initial work was done as it should have been. It didn't pan out. They kept throwing him up on America's Most Wanted. And at some point, Bolger's just an old man. And he looks like a lot of other old men. It generated many, many tips, which we ran out. Very time consuming. So you needed to change things up a little bit when that kind of thing didn't work out. There was a period where the FBI was using America's Most Wanted. It was a great tool just putting those pictures up there. But because of his age and his ability to prepare, it didn't work. It took more than that. It eventually involved publicity, but it was a very directed, specific path to get the publicity, which resulted in him ultimately being captured. And that's a whole different story. At the height of this task force, could you kind of give us some numbers? We have all these different agencies. Did you have 10 people working on it, 15 people working just to find Whitey Bolger? How many? We had an analyst that was with us the whole time working on this out of Boston, Bobby Hastings. She was great. And she was, to some extent, the backbone of this case. She stayed with it the whole time. But I would say I showed up there on these temporary duty assignments and there'd be five to six 
agents and troopers working full-time trying to find Bolger, somewhere in that range. What's the time frame? Where are we? What's the date? In December of 94, he's traveling. This is pre-indictment, and this is when he's out looking. He's going cross-country with Teresa Stanley, who was his main girlfriend at the time. He had, he had two girlfriends, but he traveled throughout the United States in 1994 prior to the indictment in 1995. And then after the indictment, a lot of travel overseas as well, Jerry, but it's all prior to him becoming a fugitive. There's safety deposit boxes overseas. He's back and forth. Money in, money out of safety deposit boxes. But eventually, after the travel, after the planning, after the European travel planning and money deposits and withdrawals in December 1994, he goes on the run after being tipped off with Teresa Stanley. There are a lot of people who are involved in this type of criminal activity gangs and murders and all of this kind of bad dealing that he was involved in. And they know they're being investigated and they know that eventually they're going to be indicted. They don't do all of this pre-planning, this preparation. He's almost doing things that I normally would see in my line of work, which was economic crime and fraud that a Ponzi schemer would do or some type of financial fraud con artist would do to prepare to escape. You don't normally see this type of activity that he was doing and violent crime kind of guy. I'm just wondering what made him do that. Any idea? Any thoughts? Yeah, well, I tell you, one of the things is he had the money to do it. I guess he had the money and the cash to take these trips and scope things out and establish a potential place where he wanted to go long term. The other thing, he liked to travel and he kept in touch with people from all over the United States. And a lot of them were related to his prior prison time. People from Alcatraz that he had met in different prisons. And so he trusted certain people. He trusted certain people he had made from prison. We found after he was indicted, when we looked at some of the travels, we were able to figure out that he had traveled to Chicago and he had traveled to Oklahoma, where he had some of these contacts from his previous time in federal penitentiary system. Very interesting. I think to your point, Jerry, I mean, you do have criminals and I've had some experience before, whether they're drug or gang, they'll have separate setups in different locations. I remember in New York, we often had criminals who would have girlfriends based in Pennsylvania or up in New York state. And they were common locations where such subjects of cases would flee when the police were moving in. But Bolger took it to the next level and the level beyond. He was a poised fugitive. He had aliases set up, money stashed, phone lines set up. That's what you don't see very often in law enforcement, no matter what type of violation the fugitive is charged with. Yeah, that definitely made him unique. Yeah, Jerry, I think he was a thinker. He almost took some of this as a challenge. I think he was somebody who believed he was smarter than law enforcement and could get away with it. And you know what? For years, it happened. And a lot of it, he was able to play law enforcement off each other to some extent and get away. He used people for his own gain, not only victims and other people in the criminal world, but law enforcement as well. And that goes back to that some of that corruption within the FBI we talked about. And I'll add too, one of the things that's very rarely talked about with this case is Bolger was ultimately charged with, I believe, 19 murders. In my experience, being a, an agent, being an investigator, both in a big city and in rural America, I've never had a cop assigned with a homicide back down from doing what he or she wants to do on that type of case because someone's an FBI informant. You know what I mean? They pull through and work those cases despite of what they may see or hear from the feds. So it's interesting to me that not one of those cases, they never made a homicide against a guy in the Boston area. I guess you have to assume that it's because they had no cooperation from witnesses, weren't able to build a case. But I don't buy that these cops assigned to those cases, whether they were troopers or local detectives, would for a minute not try and make a case because someone was an FBI informant. Now you hear that, you see that on TV shows. I see it often and I always roll my eyes because no, that's just because the FBI says back off, he's an informant. It doesn't happen that way. That's right. That's right. And it's something that was very rarely talked about. I didn't have the experience Phil did earlier on with the investigation. I just came with the, the temporary duty assignment in 2009. 
But that always piqued my interest a little bit, especially having worked in New York City and realizing that the NYPD is going to do what the NYPD wants to do. Yeah, I think that's another myth is that local agencies are state agencies are subordinate to the FBI. That's not true. We've got our federal jurisdiction. They got their state. They got their local. And we all have a dog in the fight. Nothing's going to stop somebody who has jurisdiction from continuing with their investigation. Where are we in the fugitive hunt? So in 1994, you say, is when he took off. And then for those 16 years, there was a constant search for where Whitey Bulger is hiding out. Did you have any close calls or did you think that you had him and you attempted a search or arrest and then found out that it wasn't him after all? There was one point we were advised that he was using the alias Thomas Baxter. The task force had had that alias, was working on that alias. And that's when I believe we came closest to catching Bolger. It was around 1996. We know he was in Chicago off and on. He had a meeting with Kevin Weeks. He was added to the FBI top 10 list in 1999 and then indicted for those 19 murders, a superseding indictment in 2000. But in 96, the FBI became aware of an alias, a Thomas Baxter alias. Unfortunately, Bolger also became aware that law enforcement knew that alias, and it caused Bolger to pick up and move. He had been in Chicago. He had gone after that to Grand Isle, Louisiana, where he at least said he would have stayed there in Grand Isle, except his alias is now blown. So he has to scramble, drives from Grand Isle up to Chicago in a vehicle which is registered under the Baxter alias. He's sort of hanging out doing that. You're driving in a car and law enforcement knows you're operating under an alias. But he had to scramble, went to Chicago, dumped the car, and went on the run again from there. And that was probably one of the points where law enforcement came pretty close to catching him. Didn't happen, but pretty close. And then, of course, he has other aliases he's been working on. He knows the Baxter one's no good, and so he's not using it anymore. He's starting over with a new one, or several new ones. He had more than one. And his girlfriend, Catherine Gregg, had more than one as well. And that's a story how he and she obtained those alias names and alias IDs in both New York and out in California is another part of his way he maintained fugitive status. Yeah. And for a rough timeline, Jerry, I mean, he skips town initially in December of 1994. He's tipped off to the uh, the pending indictment, the extortion indictment. He leaves with his common-law wife, Teresa Stanley. He does some of the driving around that Phil alluded to, Louisiana, New York, the Midwest. And she's unhappy living a life on the run. She had several kids and grandkids back in Boston. He comes back in April of 95, so about four months later, drops Teresa off, goes to another location and picks up Kathy Gregg, who was his younger girlfriend on the side back when he was at the the height of his criminal activity and takes off with Miss Gregg in April of 95. And the last known location the FBI had of Bolger was in July of 1996 in Chicago. What's interesting about that is the main point of reference for Bolger in Chicago was Bernard Grogan, who was a friend of his from Alcatraz. Grogan, I believe, had the real name of John O'Brien, and he was a bank robber and had done time in Alcatraz. Him and Bolger had struck up a relationship. And Bolger, we believe, had gone to Chicago in order to obtain a better ID since the Baxter ID had been compromised. He had learned of that. During that period of time, he had been a fugitive. So that year, year and a half, 95 to mid-96. He had called back home to Boston. He had called associates of his, people he knew in South Boston that knew his family. And he would say, hey, have my brother come by tomorrow at five o'clock. I'm going to call you and I want to speak to my brother. So he was in touch with family during the initial stages of his flight. And Chicago was the last really known location for Bolger. And there had been phone call activity that the FBI had identified between payphones in New York City and Grogan's residence in Chicago. Grogan had gone in and claimed he lost his driver's license on a day we knew Bolger to be in Chicago and also had been really targeted by the investigators back in Boston. He had been summoned to a federal grand jury, I think, on a few occasions in Boston to try and get him to cooperate so we could locate Bolger. All of that never worked. But definitely the perspective of the population in New England towards James Whitey Bolger changed from that initial indictment where it was just an extortion shakedown indictment to when the state police and DEA nailed him with that full RICO indictment with 19 counts of murder. And at that point, 
was really when he became a priority of fugitive that everyone knew about. After Chicago, no one knew where he was, what identity he was using. Did they know who he was with, that he was with? What was her name? Kathy Gregg? Right. Catherine Gregg. And that's when things change a little bit, too. So he drops off Teresa Stanley. He picks up Kathy Gregg in 1995, comes back to Boston and gets her. He's a fugitive at the time, but he sets it up. He's got people helping him out. He picks up the girlfriend and he's gone again in the car. That sort of changes things. And with him, unlike some other fugitives, we know exactly who his female accomplice is at this point. And in fact, she's charged, Kathy Gregg is charged April 30th of 1997 with harboring a federal fugitive. That changes things. We got two people now we're looking for instead of one. And that certainly comes into play down the road when we catch Bulger and Greg in Santa Monica, California. It's a whole different ballgame when she's charged. There's a wanted flyer up for her. There's pictures up for her. America's Most Wanted switches from just showing pictures of Bulger being wanted by the law to another a secondary female accomplice also being wanted by the law. We had pictures of Bulger. They were older. They were age-enhanced by artists back at the FBI. Kathy Gregg had never been arrested before or charged before this. She was a dental hygienist in Boston who met Bulger and eventually went on the run with him. We didn't have very good photographs of her. We had like a portrait shot, fuzzy, very old pictures. And that's one of the things that made it difficult to emphasize what she looked like until we got pictures later on, which were much better pictures. We'll talk about that as well and how that happened. And that occurred during the 2009 TDY when myself and McDonald were brought to Boston to work on the case. I had been to Boston working on this case previously and knew the people working on it. I got a call from Rich Tian, who was the supervisor on the uh, gang squad in Boston, which was working the Bulger case at that point. He knew I had working in Cleveland, running the Violent Crime Fugitive Task Force there. I had known Rich and other people from Fugitive Matters in Boston. And he called and said, do you want to come back, work on this case? Initially, it was going to be back, was it six months or a year? But they were going to bring us back, bring me back. And another person from New York City, I'll let McDonald talk about that because he is that other person. We worked together, came into town, worked with an analyst, Bobby Hastings. The task force was somewhat diminished at that point. It wasn't as many people. There wasn't as much manpower, but we were working it the way it needed to get worked. And, and it resulted in a good outcome eventually. So, Mac, you can talk about how you got there. Yeah. So I got a phone call in early 2009, early in the summer, I believe it was June. And it was from Noreen Gleason, Jerry. She was the ASAC in Boston at the time, the assistant special agent in charge of the violent crime, organized crime division in the Boston field office. And I had known Noreen. She had been a former New Jersey state trooper. She had been an agent in New York. She had been a supervisor of the gang squad. And then a coordinating say over the whole branch I was in, which was the violent crime gang and drug branch. I really wasn't personal friends with Noreen. She had just been someone that I think was, I had my head down. I was working cases on the violent crime squad in New York down at 26 Federal Plaza. She reached out for me and said that Warren Bamford, the SAC of Boston, wanted Bolger to be caught on his watch. And it was her role to figure out how to do that. And her idea was she wanted to bring two FBI agents in from outside of Boston to just work the Bolger case on a TDY status, three years in length, or unless we caught him earlier, was what I was told. It's not common for an agent in the FBI to get this type of opportunity. I was just about at my 10-year mark, so it was really, in hindsight, now that I'm retired, looking back, it was the perfect time to have this opportunity in front of me because you're at the point in your career where you started to get a little burnt out of working cases and having trials, and you're saying to yourself, do I go into management? Do I just wait for a personal resource transfer to another part of the country? Do I join another squad? I thought about it. My initial concern was I had four young kids at home from 10 down to one. I really didn't want to stop being a dad just because of a great opportunity to work a case. Fortunately, I was able to, I lived in Danbury, Connecticut at the time and was doing a crazy commute into lower Manhattan. So I was able to just leave on Monday mornings to go up to Boston and then work through the week and come home on Friday afternoons and be there for my family. So that was my biggest concern going into it. Just at that age where my older sons were starting to play baseball and basketball and I was coaching them. So I didn't want to give that up. 
I didn't know much about the Bolger case. I'm not someone who reads all these organized crime books on the FBI. I am an Irish Catholic from more New England than New York, but I really never read anything about Bolger. And fortunately, I had a few months before I reported to Boston and I read Black Mass, which was the initial book that kind of exposed the corruption of John Connolly and kind of brought the Bolger case to everyone's attention in New England and even beyond. And The Brothers Bolger was a book Howie Carr had written on the case. I researched, I read those books and I researched what I could in the case in the FBI databases and talked to some former investigators and people that had been involved. Phil and I reported in October of 2009. That's when we showed up first in Boston to work the case. What was the morale at that time as far as they've been looking for him now at that point for 14 years? I take it in the last couple of years or the last number of years, had no idea where he was. Yeah. I mean, I can only speak to what I saw, what I experienced, my perspective. When Phil and I got to Boston, it was more like a special assignment than a TDY thing. The task force had been dismantled from a private location. Rich Tiam was really the face of the case in the division. He was now a supervisor of the gang squad. And Doug Doman was an agent who was working the fugitive case, but was in transition to become a tech agent. So Doug was really helpful and Rich was very helpful to getting Phil and I set up in Boston. We were pretty much told, we worked with Bobby Hastings, who was a longtime FBI analyst, had been on the case since the beginning. It's just a real classy woman we were fortunate to have because she had a lot of answers to the questions that we had. And most of the interviews we wanted to do were repetitive interviews. It was more of a special assignment assigned to the gang squad than a task force. There was a trooper that Jack Walsh, who was still helping out with the case, who was not located in one center plaza in Boston. At least for the first few months, Phil and I were running. That's how I would characterize the climate of the case. The books had all been written, Jerry. John Connolly had been prosecuted both in federal court for corruption in Boston and for murder charges, I believe, in state court in Florida. Jack Nicholson had portrayed Bolger in The Departed now, so it was like an even bigger case in the country. I guess if I had to describe it, I would say it was kind of like a tumor in the FBI that kept growing. Like this Bolger case, it was our problem and we needed to find him and either we weren't looking for him or we couldn't find him or he was dead. That's where the phrase, where's Whitey, kind of haunted the FBI and certainly in the Northeast part of the country. So it's all now on you and Phil's shoulder to get this done. Yeah, and McDonald said we have Bobby Hastings there running stuff for us and bringing things up to speed. And she'd been there for a long time, had all that background. That was great. One thing that bogged us down a little bit, we had a plan and we had talked about it before we even got there, what we were going to do and some of the things we were going to emphasize. And we carried out that plan. But again, Bolger had been on this TV program so many times. America's Most Wanted, his face had been everywhere. And the file was just full of tips really all over the world of lookalike kind of tips. And anybody that does this kind of work, you catch people that way, but literally hundreds, maybe even thousands of lookalike kind of tips. And I saw Whitey on a bus in Dallas, Texas. He was at a bus stop. There wasn't much distinctive about him. An older man, balding, gray hair. But those tips, we needed to look at them, take them under advisement and wade through them for the ones that were good. A lot of tips were overseas. and. Another thing that sort of we had to resolve a lot of these overseas tips. He had traveled there. There had been some publicity that he was overseas. We knew he had had safety deposit boxes overseas. And one of the real the things that we had to take a hard look at, and we did, was a tip putting him in London, England in 2002. When this tip came in, it made the publicity shift from being probably in the United States. I think we all really thought that he hadn't gone overseas. But this sighting, which grew wheels and grew legs, took us back to England. And looking for this guy in England, there was a lot of press done putting him over there. It turns out it was inaccurate. He wasn't there in September of 2002, but that had taken the investigation in a different direction for a while. And we had to get around that and be smart about it and, and get the focus back on putting him in the United States, which we really believe that's where he probably was. We weren't discounting anything else. We were looking at ports and driver's licenses and overseas kind of tips, but we needed to get back on track with some things. 
Yeah, I think you have to have a strategy going into a case like this. You just can't show up and get your phone set up and your computer access going and say, okay, what are we going to do on this case? We kind of had the strategy, Phil and I, that we were going to work this from Boston out. Like we were going to start like right in Boston and then go out rather than traveling overseas or going to different countries or spending our time getting bogged down on leads out of the country. As part of that strategy, Jerry, we wanted to saturate the families. What was unique and helpful to resolve in this case, a case that really people thought was cold soup, it couldn't be resolved, was you had two fugitives about 21 years apart, a male and a female, who were from two separate but distinct families in the South Boston area. So that was interesting to us. We wanted to be aggressive, on our toes, think outside the box. There's always a difference between an active and open investigation. You can have an open investigation that no one's working on. And active investigation is stuff's being done every day, every week, and you're trying new things out. That's what we did. We brought an active nature to this case. Personally, I really like the fact that Kathy Gregg had a twin sister in South Boston that we could try and you know exploit to resolve this case. I have a twin brother. He actually lives in Boston. He's an elementary school principal. We're five minutes apart. We're very close. We talk every day. We think alike. To me, the idea that a twin sister would just drop contact from a fellow twin to be on the run for a man who's 21 years older than her and getting older didn't seem plausible. So that was something I thought was excited, an area we could exploit going into the case. I have to interject to let you know that I am the mother of identical twin daughters. So I really can relate to what you're saying. I mean, I can't imagine them not talking to each other every day. Yeah. And as a twin, I really I really felt strongly about that. I remember sitting down with Carmen Ortiz. She was the U.S. attorney in Boston at the time. And, and I brought that up to her. And I believe she had a few daughters. And she was like, I totally agree with you. It would be your instincts from being in law enforcement, just from being a person, tell you that it would be exceptional if Miss Gregg had cut off contact with her twin sister, Margaret McCusker. The first thing we did, Phil and I started, I believe it was October 5th, of 2009. And that next day, so day two of our TDY, so after we got our computer set up and our access to the buildings and all the administrative stuff that comes with going into a new field office, we met with the U.S. Attorney's Office and we asked for pen register coverage for three people that we thought were important. William Bolger, who was Bolger's younger brother and Jackie Bolger. William Bolger was a famous politician in Boston and president of the University of Massachusetts. Jackie Bolger had already served federal time as part of this fugitive investigation. And we felt like those two, along with Margaret McCusker, the twin sister of Kathy Gregg, we'd like to get up on their phones and find out who they're in touch with. For folks that aren't in law enforcement, a pen register is a court order. A judge has to approve it. The legal standard's a reasonable suspicion. It's not permanent. I think you have to renew it maybe every one or two months. I forget the time limit. But we don't listen to phone calls through a pen register, but we know the numbers that are being called and the numbers that are calling you. It's up to us to figure out who those people are that are in contact with these three key family members. What was nice about this case is like, unlike working a gang case or a drug case, these were mostly landlines, Jerry, that were calling. These folks were in their 60s, 70s. Most of the numbers were already in our case system, had already been identified by the previous investigators and Bobby Hastings. So we were able to really analyze the pattern of phone activity for these key family members early on. And it was important because if you have a number that shows up on the McCusker call records and then the Bolger call records that's out of state or out of the country, why is that one number calling two distinct families in Boston? That then becomes a priority interview for the FBI. And we asked for call records too. There were a lot of restrictions on what we could get because it was a fugitive investigation and we weren't able to really use the grand jury for certain parts of that. It wasn't as easy to get records that I had been used to working in other federal districts. But the pen registers were the first real thing we got going. And we were up on pens within three or four days of being in Boston. Were they fruitful? Yeah. I mean, the pen registers will, as we tell the story of the case, will come down as being one of the most crucial investigative techniques that resolve this case. Not only were we up on pens, Phil and I, we put a strong emphasis on knocking on doors, kind of set the tone for the case. Rather than sitting in the office, typing up a lead to have an address checked out in Brazil, where you got a sighting of an old white guy in a red sock hat on a cruise, 
Let's go out to Boston. Let's knock on doors and talk to the people that are either showing up on the pens or that you're hearing from your interviews are having connections to these priority family members. I remember just thinking back now on the case, I interviewed Mary Bolger, who was Billy Bolger's wife. I interviewed her hairdresser, the house cleaning unit, and the lady who did her nails just to see, hey, is there any way we can get one piece of information from these people, but also sending a message to that community that we're looking and we're knocking on doors. You had mentioned before that many of these interviews had been done before. What was the attitude of those people when here you come again, approaching them? I talked to another agent. I talked to another trooper years ago. Why do you keep bothering me? I don't know anything. Yeah. I mean, you never know what someone's going to say until you go and talk to them. And oftentimes, if you talk to them a new time, you learn something new, right? In addition, it also sets the tone out in our area of coverage, that being South Boston, the Boston, greater Boston area, that the FBI's got two agents out here knocking on doors. If people know something, they're jeopardizing themselves if they lie to us. There had been people who lied to the FBI early on in the investigation that were charged. So that history was kind of known. One of the other strategies Phil and I had was once we were up on the pens, you know, like you tickle the wire in a drug or gang case, you're up on someone's phones and you do coordinated interviews to get them talking over the phone about maybe a homicide that occurred a few years ago or some kind of other crime. In regards to this case, the way we did that was we came up with an idea. Let's go out to the main siblings of Whitey Bolger. He was the second oldest of six siblings. They were all still alive. They were all living in the greater South Boston area. He had three sisters and two brothers in addition to himself. We said, listen, let's go out and talk to him. Let's tell him the FBI found a John Doe that we think might be their brother. And in order for us to fully identify this John Doe, we would need to collect a DNA sample from them, a swab. And the reason for that was we could put this case to bed and stop bothering you and your family if we have James Bolger deceased somewhere in the United States. So that was kind of our strategy going out to them. Out of five siblings, only one of them consented to be interviewed by the FBI and zero of them agreed to provide a DNA sample. That kind of shows you the level of resistance we were getting on this case. Inevitably, we'd get a call from one attorney in Boston, would call either our cell phones or the office in Boston. And after each sibling we went to, he said, I represent this person and their extended family, and I don't want you to contact them anymore. That was kind of what we were getting in that case. I'm sure I can speak for Phil on this, having him worked in Cleveland for so long. It's a really interesting dynamic we were dealing with. I mean, these were law-abiding, upper-middle-class, educated people in their 50s and 60s who were not cooperating with FBI agents trying to find a guy charged with killing 19 people. And I guess that's that old blood is thicker than water, sticking up for family no matter what. Yeah, particularly Irish blood, Jerry. It's very thick. Would you say he was the black sheep of the family? Yeah, I think in some regards he was, but... They loved him anyway. Yeah, and the family had, some of them had been through the thrust of an investigation earlier back in the early 2000s, and they talked to lawyers and the lawyers said, don't cooperate. It is what it is. I mean, we interviewed several members of the family, extended members who did cooperate and did consent to be interviewed. We asked them the questions we needed to ask them, and the interview was over. Within 45 minutes to an hour, we wrote our reports and moved on. So it wasn't total lack of cooperation from the family, but from the key siblings, there was total lack of cooperation. I believe the direct words from their attorney in Boston was the Bolger family will do nothing to assist the FBI in locating and capturing their brother. And just back on the international leads, one of the other parts of our strategy was to clean up these international leads. On a case like this, that has gone on for so much. You have these international leads that are just like a bird flying around the case. They either need to be shot down or dismissed. It reminds me of my brief experience working counterterrorism in the FBI, where some of these cases go on forever and they just leave them open. It drove me nuts. We had outstanding leads in London, the Cayman Islands, Australia, Thailand, Canada, Cuba, South Africa, and Ireland that needed to be finalized. Either we're going to spend time on these or we're not. The London sighting, I understood the London sighting. I understand why when we came to Boston, it was called a confirmed sighting, but it never really resonated to me as an investigator, looking at all the facts and talking to the prior investigators as to how they came to that conclusion that that was a good sighting. How did you clean them up? What did you do to resolve these overseas leads? We had a crew we were working with in Boston. Christian McDowell was a younger agent, came down to help us out in the case, did some good work on this investigation. Bobby Hastings, Rich Tehan, Laura Hanlon was a very experienced agent who had caught a top 10 fugitive guy named Shalachi, who was a pedophile. She caught him in Mexico a few years before. 
She was asked to come down from New Hampshire and work the case with us as we got into 2010. Phil and I can both tell you, like at points of this investigation, when we were getting momentum, upper management had a way of coming in and kind of cutting our legs off, which is not uncommon in the Bureau, right? Phil got pulled back to Cleveland right at the end of December, right as we were getting going with the case. He can tell you about that. In July, right before we really were exhausting the new photographs we obtained, I got pulled back to New York City. Just SACs, worried about staffing levels and things such as that. And why is a guy in my division working in your territory on a fugitive case that kind of impeded our TDY for a little bit? Yeah, Jerry, in my case, there's a lot of stuff going on in Cleveland. And there was a time when I was on the TDY where a number of bodies were found buried in a backyard over on the east side of Cleveland. I worked with the police there on task forces for years and years. So I was brought back based on that current investigation. And honestly, it was a homicide case for CPD homicide. They worked it. They were on top of it. By the time I got back there during that time period, it was resolved. It slowed it down a little bit, but eventually I was transferred back to Boston. Even when me and McDonald were pulled back, it's not like we lost momentum here. We talked to each other all the time, almost every other day or so when we had things going on. We ran things by each other. We stayed on the case. Well, I eventually ended up coming back working on the case in 2010, transferring to Boston to work on it. One other thing I just wanted to mention, going back a little bit, one of the reasons me and McDonald could pick and choose what we wanted to do is because so much good work had been done previously. Things had been done that weren't missed. Pen registers had been done previously. We redid them and gave you different information. We talked to people that had been talked to previously, both inside and outside of the family. And we got different information or you're thinking you're going to get different information, which we did because early in this investigation, when the interviews were done, right after Bolger had gone on the run, Bolger was still a intimidating presence, at least in the Boston area. He hadn't been gone long, but eventually that sort of wore itself out. People cooperated against Bolger. People went to prison and cooperated against Bolger. People cut deals with the U.S. Attorney's Office to testify against Bolger and gave up bodies which were dug up in South Boston that had been buried during the course of all these murders. A couple of these bodies were buried not only once, but dug up again and buried a second time. That stuff happened early on when Bolger was running around doing his criminal thing. But as he was not around, and 10 years later, 12 years later, his intimidating presence diminished. And that's when people not so much his family, but other people in South Boston are worth going back to because they may be less reluctant to hold something back. Me and McDonald knew that from doing this. And that's why we went back talking to people, identifying people on pen registers and knocking on doors that have been knocked on before because things change, which it did here. And new information comes about because those things change and people look at things differently. Yeah. And two things I'll say regarding the way the investigation was set up during our TDY in Boston. The first one is, Phil's right. There had been a lot of investigators, both TFOs, task force officers, and FBI agents that had done some great work on this case and really were committed to finding James Bolger. There was agents who put together a perjury case against Billy Bolger to try and do that as a means of if we could charge him federally, maybe we would get James Bolger to come back from wherever he was hiding. A lot of good work was done on the case by numerous investigators. It's interesting to me, two things. One is like the way this case was set up, like we're violent crime agents working on a gang squad, but we're not running out with the agent sitting next to us to do a crack buy. We're not going out and doing surveillance. We're not responding to a bank robbery. Oftentimes, agents in the FBI who are assigned top 10 fugitive cases, they got a squad they're committed to. They got other investigations they're committed to. That was one of the things about the setup of this case that was fantastic. We were just working one case, and that was a luxury in the FBI most agents never get to experience. It cracks me up because I'm not a management guy. I never even in my career filled out one of those forms to become a management or put in for it. I just never did. I loved working cases. But here you have an ASAC putting together a special assignment, TDY, whatever you want to call it, to resolve a case that is critical to the reputation of the FBI. Within three months, another SAC is coming in and pulling Phil back to Cleveland. And then seven months later, an SAC is coming in and pulling me back to New York. What are they pulling us back for? It's not like there's not other agents in those divisions that can do what we're being sent back to do. 
It's just upper management fighting over like FSLs and things such as that. And it cracks me up because having been a newly retired agent, there's hundreds of agents every year that are going to do these TDYs down at headquarters and they're getting raises for it. And there's hundreds of agents that are going overseas doing these TDYs. And I don't even know what a lot of them do. But here you had a concerted effort to try and resolve a case critical to the FBI and upper management had a way of getting in and screwing it up. I had to go back and do acronyms. I try my best sometimes because I'm so used to them. Just that they fly over my head. But you said FSL, and that is field staffing level for those who are still thinking, what's an FSL? But just a staffing, but where the bodies are. Yeah, you always hear that term in the FBI when you're trying to get good people assigned to a squad that makes sense, whether it's an agent's background, maybe they were a cop or had a drug background. It makes sense to put him or her on this squad. They're going to be a 300 hitter on the squad. And you always hear from management, well, they're up to FSL. They can't have another agent because they're already at capacity. It's a bureaucratic numbers game that quite frankly hurts our efficiency, in my humble opinion. Phil gets to eventually transfer back to Boston. How hard was it now with an official transfer to be able to still work on the Whitey Bulger case? Because now that you're an official transfer, we're talking about that FSL. You could have been assigned to a squad working on something else. Well, yeah, Jerry, I tell you, when I agreed to come back and work on that, I knew that I'd only be working on the Bulger case. I made sure of that. Like McDonald said, when I was in Cleveland, I was working 50 cases sometimes at a time. And I had worked on the Bolger case even in Cleveland on these lookalike kind of leads that we obtained as a result of him possibly being cited on Akron or Cleveland. You're always scrambling. You're working 100 miles an hour, working with the police and the task force. The only way this guy was going to get caught was to have a concerted effort. And Boston committed to that when they brought me and McDonald in. And it continued when I transferred back there. I never had any doubt in my mind that would work out. Once we caught him, I was looking for other things to do. I was getting close to retirement. And that's a whole other case. There was another guy named Donald Eugene Webb, who was another former FBI top 10 that I had been involved in and was trying to figure out that something McDonald finished when he figured out what happened to Webb. I know that's a story that's been done before. Tommy's been on the show and did a case review on that on episode 256 about the fugitive cop killer, Donald Eugene Webb. Anybody interested in checking that out can do so too. I'll actually link that case review in the show notes for this episode. Tommy, now you also had been moved back to New York off of this special assignment. Did you eventually come back to work directly on finding Whitey Bolger again? Yeah. So I was pulled back to New York at the start of July of 2010. That was about a year before Bolger was caught in Santa Monica. I had gone back that September and October. I had gone back to finish. We were doing something with an informant on the case. And I went back to work on that and had traveled out of the Boston area on the case too for something as well. So I'd been like not assigned to Boston, but working on the case. Like Phil said, I was in touch with him all the time. I had gone back to New York and we started a RICO case in Yonkers, New York. So I was using informants to buy a lot of crack and a lot of guns, Jerry. Phil and I stayed in touch, but I wasn't present in Boston on the case for most of 2011. Going back, I think Phil would agree, probably the most consequential interview we did in Boston on the case was in late November of 2009. That was about not even two full months after we started the TDY. And we decided to pay Kevin Weeks a visit, who was Bolger's enforcer in his latter years and had been arrested and charged federally by the state police and the DEA and the U.S. Attorney's Office. He cooperated and was a key witness in the case against Bolger and actually was out, was not in. He was out living in Boston and Quincy in November 2009. We decided to pay him a visit on a Sunday during the second half of a Patriots game, figuring he'd be home at that time, like most people in Boston are. Just to give you the climate we were working in in Boston and how it was so different from what we had been used to, if we had called the U.S. Attorney's Office and say, hey, we want to go interview Kevin Weeks on this case. We would have gotten a call back from the prosecution team that handled the prosecution of John Connolly. And they would have said, let's do this. Submit us a list of written questions. We're going to call Mr. Weeks and we're going to ask him the questions and get you the answers. That was kind of, this was some of the real life stuff that was kind of going on when we were in Boston. 
it was just really new and different for us. So we decided, listen, Boston management has our back. Let's go knock on his door and talk to him. And we talked to him for about two hours. What was interesting was during the course of that interview, he told us of an incident where he thought he saved Catherine Gregg's life. He said he was with Bolger and Catherine Gregg one time and Bolger got her so mad, he grabbed her around the neck and was strangling her. And Kevin Weeks had to pull him off. Phil and I ended up staying at the same hotel during our TDY investigation. We never talked about where we were going to stay and we both ended up at the same hotel, which was kind of interesting. Over breakfast the next morning, we were sitting there talking about the interview and we were going back and forth on whether we felt Bolger might have killed Greg on the run because they would have stood out as a couple, an older male with a woman who's 21 years younger than him. Would they have stood out? Could he have killed her? And could she be a Jane Doe somewhere in the United States listed in CODIS or NCIC? Because Catherine Gregg had never been arrested. She had no criminal history. She wasn't in the system. Her fingerprints weren't in the system. So we had this conversation over breakfast. We had both heard in the case that there was information somewhere in the case that she had received breast implants during her life. And we had both worked missing child cases and we were somewhat familiar with CODIS and DNA and databases and things such as that. We decided, let's see if we can look into that more. Let's see if we can find any breast implant serial numbers for Kath and Greg so that if she had been found as a murdered Jane Doe and some medical examiner had done an autopsy. He may have gone in and removed those implants and listed that serial number on a report, and that would take us closer to our fugitive. So that's, in fact, what we did. We had developed a contact off the pen register, someone we had spoken to a few times. That person had provided us with information that Miss Gregg had at one time received plastic surgery, had been driven to a plastic surgery appointment at Newton Wellesley Hospital in Boston, which was new information for the investigation. Now you know where she could have possibly gotten her surgery. Yeah. And I can get into like the next few steps with all the subpoenas and stuff. But Phil, did you have anything you wanted to add about the Kevin Weeks interview? We walked in to talk to Weeks and he just basically said he had nowhere he is. You don't care what answers he gets. Sometimes little things mean a lot. One of the things he brought up as soon as he walked in was he had Bulger's Alcatraz belt buckle and he wanted to know if we were interested in it. Or The answer is no, we're interested in finding Whitey Bulger. We don't care about his belt buckle. Like McDonald said, we did some interviews that probably would have been frowned on at some point, but they took us in a direction, talking to certain people, things that we hadn't heard before. And we did become concerned for Catherine Gregg's well-being. And that's one of the things we emphasized down the road when we were looking for publicity. When we got these pictures of her, the better pictures of her, as a result of where she had had plastic surgery, just another note, we were looking for these breast implant serial numbers. And of course, what we want to do with those serial numbers, which we eventually got, is put them in NCIC, the National Crime Information Center, so that if there's a hit, a medical examiner takes out the implants and then law enforcement's involved and they run the serial numbers on these implants, we'll get a hit and figure out this deceased female or this body that was found would be related to these breast implants. It was important to get those in NCIC. We eventually put them in NCIC, but it wasn't a common practice. I remember talking to the NCIC expert in Cleveland, who at first had to call FBI headquarters to figure out in which field did you put those numbers for breast implants. It ended up going in the miscellaneous field of scars, marks, and tattoos, but it was an uncommon place. Usually you put a tattoo or a scar somebody has on their arm or leg. But breast implants were a new way to go, and that's what we were trying to do, going a new way. I would imagine that in addition to NCIC, that would have been excellent data to put into VICAP. Correct. That's exactly right. We were able to do all that. So guys, we've been talking now for more than an hour, and we have a lot more to cover. For those who don't know how this fugitive case ends, Catherine Gregg's breast implants do end up being an important, albeit unique, investigative lead for this case. So why don't we stop here now and come back for the conclusion of the hunt for top 10 fugitive Waddy Bolger in part two of this case review. And that's the end of part one of this two-part interview. In your podcast app's description of this episode, there's a direct link to the show notes where you'll find a photo of Phil Torsney and Tommy McDonald. 
Whitey Bulger's top 10 wanted poster and other photos related to the case, as well as links to articles and videos about the fugitive investigation, including the FBI's public service announcement, PSA, targeting Catherine Gregg, and the 60 Minutes interview about Bolger's capture featuring sound bites from Phil Torsney, Tommy McDonald, and Scott Gariola. There's also a link to Tommy McDonald's previous case review on FBI Retired Case File Review about Donald Eugene Webb, the other fugitive case he and Phil worked on together. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. You can show me just how much you liked it by buying me a coffee. There's a link in your podcast app's description of this episode, or you can visit jerrywilliams.com and tap on the little coffee cup icon in the bottom right-hand corner of my website. Don't forget to follow FBI Retired Case File Review on your favorite podcast app. Now, this podcast is all about true crime, but if you're also interested in crime fiction, once a month via my reader team email, I keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. When you join my reader team, you get access to my FBI reading resource, a colorful list of more than 70 books about the FBI written by FBI agents who have been guests on this podcast. There's nonfiction, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs. You'll also get my FBI reality checklist where I debunk 20 cliches about the FBI and receive news about what I'm up to and about my FBI nonfiction and crime fiction books. I want to thank you for listening to the very end. I hope you come back for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.